So Andy, when you and I got on the phone, there's a quote that we shared. A musician must make music, an artist must paint, a poet must write. If he is to be ultimately at peace with himself, what a man can be, he must be. Right. Abraham Maslow. Andy, this idea of bringing personal growth into our professional environment, you had an amazing story that's something that started with your daughters and you brought it into your work. Please take it away. What, 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 was, what were the habits that you created in your family? Well, so I, I have three daughters. Uh, every two years, whether we need one or not, here comes another girl. And, and so when they were teenagers, uh, you know, whenever I would be in the car with them driving and I'd get into any reasonable topic of conversation, uh, I would get accused of lecturing them. Dad, stop lecturing us. And so uh, I began a habit where I would send them an email every morning. And what it allowed me to do is introduce different topics of conversation where it wasn't a time sensitive thing and it wasn't where I had them trapped in the car and they didn't have anywhere to escape to. They could process it in their own time. Um, and then also, uh, you know, having an open communication line with each one of them, each one of them was dealing with their own challenges and issues. And uh, being a teenage girl is rough. I mean, uh, I was a teenage guy and I'm sure when I was a teenage guy, I made it hard for a lot of the girls around and, you know, just to understand, hey, what are they going through? Uh, you know, it made it much easier for me to communicate to them on a, on a non-time sensitive way and yet provide encouragement to them. Uh, I would always put in a quote and I would always put some pictures in it from what was going on. And uh, so that allowed me uh, a rhythm of communicating with them. And, and, you know, relationships, Adam, as you, you know, uh, you know, it's about having regular contact, regular communication, regular interaction. And, and so to set up that rhythm uh, where it arrived in their email inbox every morning, they didn't always, they didn't always read it. Uh, I found that if I, if I made a mistake in talking about what was coming up or stuff, then they immediately responded. But um, the, the opportunity to uh, build that rhythm of communication with them so that we could establish a positive relationship um, and, and it, it started me each morning thinking about the people that were most important to me um, and being able to, to get my mindset going into the day, knowing that, hey, I've at least established communication with, with the family. And so that translated as I realized I, I started doing the same thing to the team and, and to our, our team at the shop. And uh, similarly, uh, you know, coming up with a picture and a quote and something that was meaningful to them and talking to just a couple sentences about, hey, here's what we got going on. Here's the opportunities and the challenges that we're facing together. Um, and that quickly morphed into uh, our operations team kind of owning that email. And I would send my input to it um, so that I could still get my opportunity to communicate with the team. And yet the team could then provide the data and input from what was going on in the shop that day, what customer visits and and metrics that we were measuring uh, could be kept up. So, uh, you know, it's translated from home when I was trying to communicate with teenage girls. Now they're 22, 24, 26. Um, and, and yet I've maintained it for, for over the years just because it's, it's one of the favorite parts of the day. One of the, my most important things that I do as a dad. Um, so it's it, in having that go to the team every day, it establishes, again, ideas that we want to share with them, make sure people know because you know, I get to go see a bunch of customers and do stuff, but they don't always get to hear what the frontline, uh, you know, input and output is from the customers and how we get feedback. And just, it encourages them, I hope.
Yeah, I can only imagine it. You know, they say that the act of consistency is more important than the acts of intensity. And um, you, you showing them you care, you, you're customizing the messages for them, kind of maybe in the way how they're experiencing social media these days, right? It's an image. It's ultra relevant for them. But Andy, Andy, I think it's important for us to just you know understand that there are certain influences in your life. Um, and thank you for your service. You're with the Navy that brought this discipline forward. So maybe let's check in there. Well, what from you from the Navy experiences have you brought into building habits? Well, so the Navy is a very ritualistic uh, place in many ways. And you know, every day there was a plan of the day. And you know, for me, it was great because it told me what uniform to wear every day. And you know, having girls, they pretty quickly told me, hey, what I was allowed to wear and what I wasn't allowed to wear on a regular basis. But, uh, you know, I, I mean, it's funny because we all wear Bowden shirts and yet we can all decide, hey, which ones do we want to wear? And, and we'll put a logo on just about anything uh, so that our team can express some of their own personality. And yet we have that common commonality of having the logo. Um, it's funny because we wear red shirts on Friday. There was a, a, a movement started, and I want to say it's at least five years ago, that they use the acronym for red, remember everyone deployed. And and so we got to wear, hey, we'd wear red shirts on Friday. Now it's a part of when a new teammate shows up, they get t-shirts to be on the shop floor that say, you know, the logo on them and, and two of them are black, two of them are gray because they get dirty out there. And then the fifth shirt is red because we wear red on Friday. So, um, but I think the discipline of of being in the service and, and uh, you know, there's also, it's a fascinating thing getting, so I was in for six and a half years after the Naval Academy. And so 10 years in a uniform, uh, it was time, my wife's from Cleveland, I'm from Cleveland. It was time we had a couple kids when, when it was time to get out, either get out after six and a half years or stay for another 14. And that seemed like a really long time with a three and a one-year-old. And uh, the opportunity to move home was, was uh, exciting. Um, and I'll tell you, when, when you're at the Naval Academy and early in that, um, in that process, you you get brainwashed a little bit that you want to have command of something, and and you know it's a leadership school, and the opportunity to get command of a ship one day uh, is is that kind of the pinnacle of what your leadership opportunity is. And so I kid my older brother was a couple years ahead of me at the Naval Academy, and I used to kid him. I got out and got my command first because I came home and took over the family business, and uh, you know the opportunity to show up it was similar to showing up at my ship as a new division officer i knew the least amount of the you know about the equipment that i now owned and i i would meet with the the new team that i now was responsible for and tell them listen i'm going to ask you a lot of questions uh you guys know that i'm the line between you and the captain and if you can keep me out of trouble hopefully i'll learn enough quickly to certainly be useful to you and to make sure that that we can do good things and I can protect you from the captain as long as I know what's going on. If we screw up something, hey, I'll own it. It's my my stuff to own and I'll protect you, but you got to keep me in the know. And I had contemporaries who would show up and kind of say, hey, it's my way or the highway. And that didn't usually elicit as, as good a response from, from my, my opinion. So uh, showing up and having a lot to learn and yet being responsible for what was going on. When I showed up here, I had the same last name as the old guy in the corner office. Right, that was my dad, and and so it wasn't rocket science. Hey, what was potential going to happen here? Um, and yet, I didn't walk in entitled to say, "Hey, whatever I say goes," because um, that that wouldn't have worked well in the Navy, and it certainly wouldn't have worked well well here. But the opportunity to uh, to ex, you know express uh, the leadership training and skills that I had been 
I had been taught and had been earned by experience. Uh, it was, again, it was a fun opportunity to kind of take that command role. Totally. And it sounds like you brought quite a lot from responsibility to discipline. The The other area that I'd love for us to unpack, which is consistent with the quote we talked about, which is um, kind of finding the right fit for the organization and for yourself. And um, the you shared with me one of the ways how you, you do that, how you determine the fit. And it was so visceral and I failed so quickly just in my mind. As you described the situation, I knew I, knew I, w- I would fail. So I'd like us to go there. What is that test that you described that I failed miserably? And then from there, h- how do you approach finding the fit that's really drastically different for your industry that other industries can learn from? Well, so uh, the, 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 what you're talking about is when, when we bring folks in to interview, and we interview a lot of, of college students, mechanical engineers, and recent graduated mechanical engineers, and we bring them in, and, and kind of our zone is, we, I mean, we're a machine shop. We get them dirty, and we teach them how to make stuff. And what we're looking for is those people who want to get uh, get hands in and hands on what they're doing. And so we'll take them out on the shop floor and we'll kind of hold a part in front of them. And we look to see whether they grab that part and they start looking at it closely to see, hey, how is this thing made and where are the machining marks and that stuff? Or some people will just kind of, they'll put their hands behind their back and they'll lean forward and go, oh, that's interesting. And they clearly are not looking to and excited about getting dirty. And, and it's just, I mean, hey, we all have to find our fit and we would rather have, we bring them, everybody has to come on the shop floor before we'll hire them. We want them to see what the experience is gonna be like. We actually have them load and unload machines during the interview process. We wanna see their mechanical aptitude. Um, you know, we're looking for those folks that are a fit, they're interested in mechanical engineering and, and translating that into the manufacturing engineering side. But we also, we're not looking for somebody who wants to spend all their day in a cubicle behind a computer because that's not our environment. And there are a ton of places that, that are needing that. And that, you know, finding a person to find their fit is, is really important for them to thrive. And, and when I, I typically kick off the interview sessions and I tell them, listen, don't say what you think we want to hear you say. And just go be yourself, be curious and, and inquisitive about what's happening on the shop floor. And if you're a fit, that's great. If you're not, you learn something today, right? And, and the number of times where I would get an email afterwards saying, uh, hey, I think I'd like to potentially continue. And our team evaluated them and said, you know, this is not, this person's not a fit. And we've, I mean, literally we're now over thousands of students that we've interviewed. We just, we have this sense of, hey, who's gonna dig in and who's not? And we've made some mistakes, but um, by and large, we can tell. And they'll, I'll email, hey, we didn't think it was gonna be a good fit. And they would email me back saying, well, what could I have done better? And I always, now I tell them ahead of time, look, it's not a better thing. It doesn't, it just means you're not a fit. It doesn't mean we don't think you're gonna be a great engineer. It doesn't mean we don't think you're smart. It doesn't mean anything other than for our environment, we have, experience that tells us based on how you approached it you're not going to be a fit and so finding a fit is true for all of us what's the stuff that lights you up that doesn't feel like work that gets you to come to the office or come to the shop every day and dig in because you're enjoying it doesn't feel like work andy as far as you know are you the only organization that has this out of the box thinking of how you determine fit you know i i I can't say unequivocally. I know that 
the way we hire engineers is very unusual. When I talk to folks that are running companies like ours and I tell them, listen, we have 15 degreed mechanical engineers running machines on our shop floor every day. They're asking me, okay, did you do some sort of Jedi mind trick on them to get them to say yes to come do this? And the answer is no, we've, we've selected for the proper fit and we're teaching them the very hands-on design engineering, designing process and manufacturing engineering. So I tell them, listen, when you've held plus or minus two thousandths on a three inch diameter for eight hours, you will never casually put a tight tolerance on a drawing again because you've done that. It slows you down. It's more costly. It's frankly a pain in the backside. So you won't be casual about it. Now, if you need that tight tolerance, you'll do everything you can to engineer around it. But ultimately, hey, we make tight tolerance stuff like that. And yet we do it for a specific reason or it's gonna get designed out because we need to manufacture and design for manufacturing so it's the most cost effective it can be because there's lower cost countries and there's other places to get stuff made and we gotta work to manufacture it as effectively and efficiently as possible. And so I don't think there are many folks that are, are doing the way we are and certainly selecting for fit for young engineers to come in and get dirty. Um, there are a lot of internships that get somewhat hands-on, um, but certainly the graduate degree, you know, our degreed engineers entry-level uh, ME program is, is very unique. Um, and and it's, been, it's been tremendously successful for us, mostly because we're, we're looking for a, a small subset of that group that nobody's, they're, nobody's approaching them in a similar fashion. So if they're a fit, it resonates with them and they're excited to join us. Fascinating. So, so as you think about the thousands of, of folks that you've interviewed for, for the position to find the subset, what are you learning about this new generation um, that's coming into into the wor workforce? And, and I assume with that, are the three daughters are part of that next generation. So your learnings are on the personal and professional side. Both. Absolutely. And, and it's funny, my middle daughter is a mechanical engineer with a biomedical minor. And, and uh, she went through an internship process with a couple of larger companies. She works for a Danaher company now out in Seattle. Uh, it's a medical device uh, company. And uh, I, I certainly was listening carefully as she navigated her internship pro programs um, and the way they did offers and how they did it because, hey, they've been doing it a long time and a big company. Um, and, and so I, uh, I imitated them <laughs> at a few, few spots for sure. Um, but I think the, this new generation, it's funny, I think we give them a bad rap. Um, and, and it's partly because we're very old school and we grew up where you kind of got beat up and you just sucked it up and made it through because you had faith that on the other side it was going to get better. And this generation is not, that's not how they uh, experience the world. And so it's very different for them. I think they still, they, they want to be inspired they definitely want to learn and grow. And I think when we're dealing with students and recent graduates, they are intent on figuring out, hey, how am I going to grow my skills that's going to then translate into my future career opportunities and options? Um, they do want feedback on a consistent basis. And I know we altered our, uh, the offers that we were making in the six years we've done the program uh, initially, we would offer just kind of, hey, here's your starting, your starting rate. Um, and, and we both scaled that up. But the most important change we did is we, we instead of saying, hey, here's what you're starting at, 
we started and said, hey, here's what you're gonna be at for the first four months. And then at the four month point, eight month point, 12, 20, out to 24 months. And it's, it's almost like uh, the rookies in the NBA, right? They get their salary going up because we have every expectation they're gonna be on a growth path. And so it does two things for us. One, it makes that growth path very clear for them so that they don't ever wonder when's my next raise gonna be, which used to be a, a very popular question. We sit down with all of our teammates every four months, just as a regular performance review kind of thing. And from the first one, they were, okay, am I gonna get a raise or what am I gonna do? They're new to being in the working world. And so instead of having that feel like an awkward conversation, are they gonna ask, are we gonna talk about it, whatever, we just built that, that roadmap when they signed up and it did two things for us. It allowed that that growth path is there and it also allowed them to know that, hey, in two years, they're gonna make 15 or 20,000 a year more than they started out at because they could see, hey, here's the growth progression that they're gonna get to. And typically we're competing with bigger companies who are looking for design engineers that they can put in a cubicle and teach design engineering to. And so as a small company, I mean, we're an 8 million a year manufacturer. We, we needed to have some other means of being a competitive advantage. And that was, you know, if I start them at the equivalent of 55,000 a year or 50,000 a year, and I have them scale up to 65 or so, um, they, they focus on that 65 number and at least they can see it. So it allows them a reason to say, okay, I can take a lower offer from Bowden because I'm gonna see growth and I know where I'm getting to. So, um, and, and you know, I'm sure it's the same for my daughters. You know, we talk through, hey, what does that offer look like? And we're trying to help these young engineers justify to their parents that they like our program better and they'll make that return in dollars if they get through the program. Um, because again, the psychology of a 22 year old is still steeped in what am I going to tell mom and dad? You know, here's a question. I don't know if I'm getting too granular, but I am curious when you're building out the journey over the next couple of years for them, are you assuming an, an aggressive learning path? Are you assuming an average? Are you, are, is this something that is expected of them? Can they accelerate beyond that? So just uh, just curious on, on your mindset and let me know if I'm going too, too in the details and you're like, Adam, I need a couple hours. Absolutely. No, totally fine. So the the expectation when I tell them and, and we all recognize any of us that are dealing with salaries and, and hiring and all that stuff is you can always take the number up. Right. Psychologically speaking, the t there's zero opportunity to take the number down without ending up sacrificing that employee. Right. It's just not going to happen. And so we build that curve with expectation and we do let them know, listen, if if you're going up and, and you know, going back, we started and I, I can't remember exactly where we are now. Uh, but so it was, you know, 50, 53, 56, 60, 63, 66, 70 was kind of our progression. So they'd go from 50,000 to 70,000 in the course of 24 months. And I mean, it was essentially the hourly equivalent of that, but it's easier in round numbers for them to see that. But we would tell them, listen, if you do, if you grow faster, everybody grows at their own pace, we have to at least keep you at that curve. But if you go faster and we bump you up, let's say we wanna, instead of going from 50 to 53, we go 50 to 54. Well, now we just add a thousand to that curve. So that now the, the curve is still there and yet it's elevated because they've demonstrated that they've gone beyond kind of what we expected our normal. And that normal was really born out of the first 10 to 15 of these young engineers that we had come through the pipeline. 
um, and because initially we didn't have that escalator and we kind of had to work with them to see, okay, what feels, what feels appropriate, what feels right. Um, and so, you know, having it where there's an opportunity to go up and you'd say, okay, there's no opportunity to go down, but it, it actually forces them to recognize, look, I have to keep growing. Early on in the program, we had a couple, there was two that I recall specifically that they kind of got to their year and a half into the program and they, they felt like, man, I could just, I'm running a pretty complicated job. I enjoy this, but I'm feeling like, man, I could just stay here for a while and just kind of let it ride for a couple of years. Um, and, and we said, listen, this is designed for you to grow. And it comes, as you pointed out, Adam, to my Navy background where I showed up at a ship and I relieved a guy, took over for a guy who had been there for two years, and I was there for about two years, and the next person came in. And so, so that sense that we're always bringing new folks in, and we want to have people continue to learn and grow so that there's, there's always kind of easier stuff to run on the shop floor, and it gets more and more complicated as we go. Um, we want them to continue to learn and grow. And so since we put this escalating salary schedule in place, we haven't had anybody kind of want to hang out because they see the opportunity that's in front of them and they want to learn and grow. And so kind of getting back to your original question, this young new generation, they do want to learn and grow. They do need a consistent feedback on a regular basis. How am I doing? And frankly, they want to know good or bad what's happening. And yet they don't want to hear it from the old school. Hey, just suck it up, kid. They want to understand, hey, what could I do better? What should I specifically be doing that's going to enhance my contribution to the company and to the team? So I think those are definitely some of the biggest things that, that we see. I, and I do, the last thing is, and this is what we, part of what we've created is, they do want to be around people their own age in a similar zone in the program, right? And so a lot of machine shops, and this is, you know, manufacturing kind of had our hiring crisis maybe a decade or two ago where you started seeing these apprenticeship programs kind of dying off and the trade schools, you know, reducing enrollment. And, and so a lot of shops kind of our zone, you know, there's a bunch of 50 plus people out running them. And then you sh a 22 year old shows up and just feels completely lost and, and alone. And so I always encourage companies when they're going to try something like that, you got to bring in two to four of them. At, together, so at least there's some camaraderie around folks kind of going through um, as as a cadre together, if you will. Um, but now we're at the point where you know people come for an interview, and there's there's 15 young engineers running, and and a bunch of interns also. You know, our average age has plummeted um, as we've gotten deeper into this program, where you know now we're over a third of our workforce you know is under 25, which is is pretty unusual for a shop like ours. Um, but it's, it, it's that sense of camaraderie that the team has around having people that are around their own age has definitely been helpful. And it's certainly, I think it's true for all of us, but definitely this younger generation wants to feel a part of you know, a common team. And Andy, when you think about this new generation, what about the flip side of it? What, what are some of the unique challenges that you're seeing uh, also on the personal, professional side? Um, no doubt from a positive perspective, I see it. What's challenging for you? Uh, I, it, is, it is challenging to, to try and keep, uh, keep them engaged and focused on, on the long-term view because 
you know, we intentionally, when we initially are interviewing and hiring, we're talking about, hey, the next two to three years, um, having them focus on that because, you know, knowing from my own daughters, going, if you say five years, that seems like forever, right? And so the opportunity to, uh, to stay in that kind of shorter term mindset is challenging from, I mean, I, it'll be 24 years next week that I've been here. Um, and so when you're in that longer term uh, thinking, uh, it can be hard to remember, hey, there's somebody new, we gotta give them short-term goals and ideas to, to keep them interested and engaged. Um, and, and the other challenge of our program is, you know, there are two main times, there's spring career fairs and false career fairs. And so we're looking to hire coming out of either people graduating in May, graduating in December, or doing a co-op or internship in either the summer, spring, or fall semester. And so we're doing that, like right now, we're going through the process of interviewing coming off the fall career fair. And we're looking for spring and summer hires. And our experience is if we don't make offers now to get them locked in for the certainly the spring and, and even the summer, they're gonna get other offers and we're gonna be hard pressed to get them. And yet we're also trying to predict our volume three, six months from now. And so that is a, it's a, that's the biggest challenge of the model. It's hard to get enough in the fall semester because there's no career fair before the fall semester because the kids are on summer break. Um, it's fairly, still fairly challenging to get the spring semester because they wanna graduate on time, which means they don't wanna do a co-op unless it's required. Um, and then the summer is, seems to be the most plentiful time to get them. And yet it's also, now I gotta fast forward. If I'm, it's October now, what, what's my volume gonna be in June, July, and August? And how many, we've had as many as 25, 26 interns in the summer, um, which is a lot, but once we get them to speed, we get, I mean, we get a lot of work done. And then the problem is in August, when they start going back to school, you all of a sudden you feel your, your workforce draw down. And as, if you're still busy as we were, you know, the last couple of, well, last summer, certainly um, this past summer, you know, we, we didn't want them to leave and yet they go back to school. You know, the shortening horizon, the shortening of the attention span, we, we know it's shorter now than it's ever been. You just made me think of this. I Over the last six months, my son, who's 16 years old, who's actually helping with the, with editing the podcast, you know, I multiple times I've gone up to him and I said, hey, look at what we've just accomplished. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, we talked about doing this two, three months ago. And he thought about it long and hard and said, dad, I, you know, I'm a teenager. I, I can't remember that far back what we discussed, right? Two, three months seemed ludicrous for him from a planning time horizon. He goes, I get excited about what we could do tomorrow, two days from now, maybe a week out, but anything beyond the week out, forget it. Like that, that's, that's an eternity. And if you think about how much information he's going to receive between now and then, how much information is received on an hourly, minute-by-minute basis from Snapchat, Instagram, YouTube, all of the information that, that's bombarding and hitting our dopamine. It's uh, it's extraordinary time for us to think about new generations coming into the workforce. So Andy, as, as, as we kind of wrap up here, Folks that are listening in, they're executives, whether they're learning development, change management, they're executives, maybe they have an operational set on. And uh, our conversation was about finding the right fit. We talked about a few creative ideas that are specific for your industry. We talked about the generations that are coming in. Um, what piece of advice would you leave them with as they think about this new generation 
and making sure that they find the right fit for, for their roles? Well, so I do think having a sense of what the fit is both within the culture of your company and the role that they're being going to be asked to do, uh, if there's ways to tangibly test that fit before they get in um, and, and really telling them and giving them some opportunity to, to try some of those things in the interview process so both you and they can see, hey, this is the kind of stuff that you're going to be doing on a regular basis. And they either will set them on fire or it'll make them, oh, I'm not sure this is for me. And that you want to get that data if you can before you're extending offers. I think the other big piece of advice that we've seen is, is that it's hard for us to remember when we were that age and the fact that they're coming in and the opportunity to learn and understand what's going around them and, and the business stuff. I tell other CEO types that if you can schedule in and whether depending on the size of the company, whether it's, it's you as the CEO in a smaller business like us or even you know, different VPs and stuff in a bigger company, the opportunity to connect directly with those kind of waves of new hires and give them perspective on the business, give them access to kind of asking upper level questions, almost like a, a fireside chat or a, an open house where you can have those conversations or a lunch where you can invite them in. Um, that building a system, and as you know, Adam, we've talked about, I mean, everything's a system, right? Getting that one hour uh, a, a week or one hour a month where they're engaging with something higher level in the company to give them that taste of, of hey, here's the big picture of what's going on. And it's nobody like, but like the CEO can, can really communicate, hey, this is what we're looking to be about and this is what we're looking to do. And being able to ask pointed questions, answer pointed questions from the team, especially the newer, younger, excitable, enthusiastic youth of this, you know, of our society today, it's something that we take for granted and yet we we shouldn't because it's hard for us sometimes to remember back when 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 I was an ensign or lieutenant junior grade on the ship and the admiral would come over to to present an award to somebody or do something, it was this, oh that's right, that's in touch with the higher levels of what's going on. And it was exciting and you wanted to get your dress uniform on, you wanted to make sure the ship looked good and you were there to engage with that next level, that next couple levels of the chain of command because that sense of visibility and understanding of where they were at and how and what I what I'm doing, how does that play into the bigger picture? And I think we as CEOs forget that that new young graduated mechanical engineer doesn't know that, hey, this is what's going on these customers and to engage with them, it takes so little of our time and yet has such a meaningful impact on their young careers and their desire to stay here. And, and you know, I've heard you and, and your guests in the podcast talking about the role of the manager and that role is important on a day over day business, but if once a month you as a CEO had an all hands meeting that it doesn't even have to be very long or even better, a specific thing for recent hires to engage with them on a once a month for a half hour or 20 minutes even to engage with them. I think that's definitely something this new generation, they want to feel connected to the bigger picture and that opportunity to hear from the CEO is just a really important opportunity that that I know I didn't recognize it early on until I stopped. I mean, I was doing it and I didn't realize it was important until I kind of shifted my schedule a little and then realized, hey, I got to get back to some of this because they need to hear that extra message. And yes, they hear it 
from in our company they hear it every morning in my little section of the email but there's just no substitute for getting in front of them and talking with them um, and, and having your perspective on the business come through yeah a small thing that makes a big difference and, and you said it it, it gives them th- this sense of connection belonging and, and most importantly meaning Andy, this this has been a pleasure. Thank you for sharing your experiences in the Navy as as a dad and um, as a leader of your organization. I appreciate your time and wisdom. Well, Adam, thanks for inviting me on, and uh, appreciate the work you're doing. Over and over.